Well, good morning. I'd like to invite you to open your Bible or maybe the one of the Bibles in the pew or even a Bible app if you have it. You can do whatever you need to do, but if you would, turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the book of Matthew, and then find chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 13. If this is your first Sunday with us, uh, what you need to know is that we are currently in a message series looking at the interactions and conversations of Jesus with one of his very flawed and yet faithful disciples named Simon Peter. Thankfully, the Bible doesn't paint the, the picture of the disciples as being picture perfect, that they never did anything wrong. No, it provides a very accurate assessment of the disciples, including all of their warts. And so when you look at the life of Peter, you find that like many of us, he is prone to lack faith. He's prone to lack courage. He is prone to sin. He is prone to, to wander. And yet Jesus never gives up on him. By the time we get to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus has been walking with Peter and the other disciples for, for over two and a half years. Through his teaching and through his miracles, he's been trying to show them over and over again, this is who I am. And all of that culminates in our passage today, which kind of serves as a final exam for Peter and the disciples. Now, I know that many of you, for many of you, this was back to school week, right? Uh, Rachel and I dropped off our kids at school this week, and I cannot tell you what a relief it was as we dropped them off, and I had this thought. I never have to go to school again. <laughs> it's a great thought, right? This last spring, I finished my doctoral work, and so as I left there, I was thinking, I am so glad that I never have to read another book that somebody wants me to read. I never have to write a paper that I don't want to write. I never have, never have to take another final exam. I don't know about you, but final exams have always been hard for me. They stressed me out. The fact that your entire grade could be summed up and, and so changed by one test. Uh, there was a professor in college that was teaching systematic theology, which in essence is the study of Christian doctrine, the study of Christian beliefs. And he was known as the hardest test giver at my school, Oklahoma Baptist University. Well, when finals time came around, he decided this year I'm not going to give a study guide, which made everybody freak out. Everybody, literally the whole week, we're all studying. There's, there's people staying up till midnight studying, trying to think, midnight, it was probably 1, 2, 3 a.m. in the morning, all night at Denny's, what is going to be on this test? The class walks in the room, and to our surprise, there's one sheet of paper that he hands out. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Flip it over, one question. Our entire work, our entire studies all year came down to this one question. The question was this, who is Jesus? Now, the longer I've studied the scriptures, the longer that I have been engaged in ministry, the more I realize I got to give this guy props. That is the one question that matters most. Who really is Jesus? Because our faith is based on this question. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this statement down. Who you say Jesus is will determine both your eternal joy and your present way of life. What you believe about Jesus has radical implications. Joy, your status, the big statement. Who you say Jesus is will determine both your eternal joy, your status before God, and your present way of life. There's no more significant question than this question, who is Jesus? And yet throughout history, people have struggled to know what the answer to that question is. 
We see that in our text today. So if you would read with me, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. The word of God says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? So he's asking, who, what, what's the average person on the street? Who do they say the Son of Man is? He's talking about himself with that phrase, Son of Man. And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now this is interesting. If I were to go out on Market Street today and I were to ask the question, who is Abraham Lincoln? Most all the responses are going to be the same, right? President of the United States. He he enacted the 13th Amendment, ending slavery during the Civil War. This was a a big deal. Everybody's going to kind of be in that same, same genre. If I were to go out and say, who is Michael Jordan? Again, people are going to say around the same thing. Greatest basketball player ever to live. Maybe you may have a difference of opinion in that. But greatest basketball player, six-time NBA champion, Chicago Bull. That's Michael Jordan. If I were to say, who is Steve Jobs? Everybody's going to be the same. Creative genius, co-founder of Apple. And yet, if I were to go to the same street and ask this question, who is Jesus? I can promise you the opinions are going to be varied and they're going to be very opinionated, right? Many people have different idea of who Jesus is. Well, that's what's happening here. Jesus was walking in this region that's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee that consisted at that time primarily of Gentiles. It was a region that was known for pagan worship. Throughout their history, it had been that way. They had started off by worshiping the god Baal. When the Greeks came in and took over this area, they began to worship a god named Pan. Later, when the Romans came in, they began to worship Caesar Augustus as God. And so they had many, many gods. And as Jesus is walking through this area and seeing all these gods calling out for the allegiance of these people, he says, who do they say I am? When you hear the disciples' response, it's clear that no one was saying Jesus was just your average guy. They could all see through his miracles and his teaching, his ability to heal the sick, to cast out demons, that he was closely connected to God in some way, which is why everything they say here is complimentary. Do you notice that? They mention him alongside John the Baptist, who Jesus said was the greatest man ever to walk the planet. Some said that he was Jeremiah, who's one of the most known Old Testament prophets, the weeping prophet who who begged the people of Israel to to return to their God. They mentioned him alongside Elijah, who performed many miraculous things. He called down fire on the false prophets of Baal. He was seen as a person who would be the forerunner of the Messiah, that he would return for that purpose. These were some big-time spiritual heroes. But here's the thing. When they are compared to who Jesus actually is, They are totally inadequate. Totally inadequate. While the crowds believed Jesus was a great man, even a godly man, they missed his real identity. This shouldn't be surprising to us because, number one, if you're taking notes, a strong, a wrong assessment of Jesus is one of humanity's most common errors. A wrong assessment of Jesus is one of humanity's most common errors. As a child, I grew up uh, many mornings watching the game show Price is Right. One of the great life lessons that I learned from a young age watching that show is that you can't always trust the answer that the crowds are yelling, right? It's not always the right answer. And that's what happens in this text. When it comes to this question, who is Jesus, the crowds then and the crowds today have always had these wrong assessments of who he is. 
Let's look at a few of these. They're going to be up on the screen. Many in Jesus' day believed Jesus was another prophet, a religious man, a man that God was using, but just one among many. It's the same thing that many Muslims believe about Jesus today. Others today would prefer to to see Jesus as just one of those prominent religious figures, somebody like Muhammad or Joseph Smith, like Gandhi or Buddha. He's, He's one of those in the past that still has influence today. Some would look at Jesus and say, well, he was a really effective teacher. He, he has a bigger following. His teachings have a bigger following than anyone ever. And yet, even these people would probably say, well, his teachings, while they were good early, they've been misconstrued by the church. That's what you hear a lot of times. Maybe some would say he's a moral example, a person who continually did the right thing. And so as we look at his life, we can see the right way to live. Others see him as a social revolutionary, Somebody that's coming in to to try to turn his society upside down. And then there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees who saw him as a threat. His presence and teaching threatened their authority. They threatened their autonomy to kind of live however they wanted to live. Look at that list. Crowd's assessment has always been varied. But here's what I find interesting. You look at that list on the screen. It's not that any of those things were, were really wrong. It's just that they're inadequate. Was Jesus a great teacher? Yes. Was Jesus a moral example? Yes. Was Jesus a person, a spokesman for his father? Yes. But even if you combine all these things, Jesus is so much more than that. And that's so important for us to understand because if we, any of us in this room, have a lesser view of Jesus, it will dramatically impact how we follow him. For instance, think about this. If you think Jesus is just another good teacher, then yeah, you may try to follow his teachings, but the moment that his teaching rubs up against you the wrong way, what are you going to do? You're going to find another teacher. If you see Jesus as this guy with, with good ideas, then yeah, you may follow and implement some of his ideas, but he's never going to be the ultimate authority of your life. Maybe you see Jesus as a moral example. You say, I can try to live like that, but if you fail, it's no big deal. He was just here 2,000 years ago. Jesus understands the significance of this question, and that's why he moves from a general question in verse 13 to this more specific personal question in verse 15. I want you to imagine that Jesus is asking you this question today. He says in verse 15, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Not the crowds, not the popular opinion. Who do you say that I am? This is the final exam. And wouldn't you know it, Peter, out of all the disciples, is the first to speak up. He says in verse 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. you got to love Peter. No matter how many times he has failed, he's always here and he's always ready to go again. And this time, friends, he nails it. He doesn't listen to the crowds. He knows their view of Jesus, while good, is inadequate. And that's why his assessment is this. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That name Christ, when it says that Jesus is the Christ, it's not Jesus' last name like many people imagine it to be, right? Jesus Christ. For hundreds and hundreds of years, this word, this title, Christ, It's the title of the person that the people of Israel were longing for. It's the title of the Messiah, the anointed one. 
Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, God had promised that he would send the Messiah, and this Messiah would bring about the culmination of God's saving activity. He would bring about prosperity to his people. He would bring about blessing. He would bring about freedom and fulfillment to the people of God. They had longed for this person. They had searched for him. And here Peter is, and he says, I get it. Jesus, you are the Christ. The Christ is here. But he takes it a step further. He doesn't just stop with that functional title of what Jesus is going to do, Christ, the Messiah. No, he says, he, Jesus, is the son of the living God. I love that. I think about what he's saying in the midst of that culture. He's looking at all these other gods, and what is he saying? Your gods are dead. Jesus, you want to see a living God? You see him in Jesus. Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father that is unlike any other. He's the son of God. This was quite an announcement. It's the first time that a disciple had announced this news. But I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't look at when Peter, when he says this and say, whoa, Peter, now you're going a little too far. No, Jesus affirms what Peter says. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father church. And, the, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, in just a moment, we're going to come back and we're going to unpack the implications of those two verses. But before we do so, I thought, I want you to see one more thing that caught my attention when it comes to Peter. Even though Peter gets the assessment right, okay, he says Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Even though he gets it right, what becomes clear is that he doesn't fully understand the implications of what it means to follow Jesus. We see that in verse 21. Right after this conversation where Peter has declared this, it says that Jesus begins to show the disciples what kind of Messiah he's going to be. Look with me, verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. Just imagine that. Peter takes him aside and he began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, you read these passages back to back, and you got to think, what just happened? Peter just said that he's the Christ, the, the Son of God. Jesus called Peter the rock. And now he says, behind me, Satan. What's going on here? What's the same thing that I believe happens to us so often? Peter, while having a right understanding of Jesus, does not fully understand what it means to follow him. He's still in a learning process of what Jesus' messiahship was going to look like. Yeah, you can't blame him. Like all the other Jews in his day, Peter was expecting a messiah that was going to bring in a physical kingdom. He was expecting Messiah that was going to come in and restore Israel's prosperity. A man that would bring back Israel to the days, the glory days of the past. A man who would get rid of the Romans and bring freedom, physical freedom, to the Jewish people. You think about this, he had no concept of a dying, suffering Messiah, and that's why he rebukes Jesus. But Jesus doesn't back down. 
He says, Peter, you're missing it. The way you are thinking is satanic because your mind is on human things and not the things of God. Now, why would he call Peter Satan? I mean, that's a, that's a major statement, right? Well, you think back to the, the temptations, right? He says, Peter, you're being a hindrance to me. You're, you're a stumbling block for me. You think back to the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. What did Satan tempt Jesus with? Power, an earthly kingdom. He says, look at all of this. This can be yours if you just bow down to me. All the things that this world has to offer. Peter has his mind on that same thing. And so Jesus rebukes him and he says, no, get your mind off of the things that humans desire and onto the things of God. Everything about Jesus's ministry from this point in the book of Matthew to the end is pointed toward his death and resurrection. Jesus knows that he's on his way to the cross. Through his death, he's going to take the punishment for sin that every single one of us, including the disciples Peter himself, deserved. He was going to take on himself that righteous judgment. He knew that when it most looked like he was going to be defeated, that through resurrection, he was going to put an end to the reign of death over humanity. Jesus knows what kind of Messiah he's going to be. And so the problem is not him. He knows where he's going. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to be risen from the dead. The problem is Peter. Peter's mind are on physical things rather than the more important spiritual realities of what Jesus was going to bring about. So I thought about this week, how, how often do we get into the same dilemma? Think about it. How often do we get our mind fixed on physical things? We, we want Jesus to be a Messiah who brings physical blessings, who brings physical healing, who, who brings physical change to our circumstances instead of exalting in the incredible spiritual realities that Jesus has already given us. Jesus has made us spiritually rich. He has brought cleansing from our sin. His spirit dwells within us and changes us from the inside out. How much greater of a Messiah is he than our expectations? I don't know about you. Peter still had a lot of learning to do, and I do too. My focus can get so caught up in the physical things, even if I know who Jesus is. Well, let's look back now at verses 17 and 18. Because Jesus' response to Peter is, is really important. In verse 17, he says this, And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. My opening statement this morning was, Who you say Jesus is will determine both your eternal joy and your present way of life. And that's exactly what we see here. A right assessment of Jesus brings about what he says is a life of blessing. He looks at Peter right after he's made this announcement. He says, blessed are you. And when Jesus says that someone is blessed, that is a big deal. You look at Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Route, this, this word blessed comes up a lot. A lot of times I think when we think of the word blessed, we think of, of temporary physical things. Man, I got this job, I'm blessed. Man, I got a date, I'm blessed. Man, I got this raise, I'm blessed. There are these temporal realities that make us happy for a moment. When Jesus talks about blessing, that's so much more than what, what we think of when it comes to the word blessed. In the book of Matthew, when Jesus talks about blessing, he primarily does so to talk about a state of eternal joy and status before God. What he's saying with this word blessed is you are approved by God. 
And that is a massive thing. One scholar said it this way, blessed refers overwhelmingly to the distinctive joy which accrues to man from his share in the salvation of the kingdom of God. In other words, when he says you're blessed, what he's talking about is salvation. This statement, you are the Christ, the son of God, that believing in that brings about salvation. Now, I'm not, you think about what Jesus says in many different places, and you see him say this over and over again in many ways. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. The whole gospel is summed up well by John in chapter 3 where it says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Listen to this last phrase. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What you do with this question, who is Jesus, matters not just now, but for eternity. Cleansing from sin, victory over death, a blessed life where we walk with Jesus beginning now and extending throughout all eternity is connected to answering this question correctly. Thankfully, God has not left us on our own, though. You think about this. Left to ourselves, none of us would come up with what Peter says in this passage. We know that because here's what Jesus says in verse 17. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What this means is that no person will ever rightly understand Jesus and turn to him without the work of the Father already going on in their heart. That's why this morning my goal is not to persuade you through a lot of intellectual arguments about who Jesus is. My goal is not to persuade you with lofty speech and all these things of wisdom to get you to see that Jesus is the Son of God. I can't do that. But you know what I have done leading into this sermon? I've spent time praying for every single one of you that have come into this room. That God the Father would open your eyes to see who Jesus really is. That you would see his worth. That you would see that apart from him, you are condemned in your sin. That's what the Bible says. You're separated from God. God. You're without hope of ever finding the joy that he has made available to you. But as you see Jesus for who he is, all those things become yours and you live a blessed life, a life of salvation. Well, finally, we realize when we realize who Jesus is, it not only leads to a life of blessing, but it leads to a life of proclaiming. Verse 18 says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this one verse has caused quite a bit of confusion and controversy in the history of the church. What it really boils down to is this. What is this rock that Jesus says he's going to build his church on? Is it Peter? Is it the apostles? Is it, is it the gospel message itself? Well, the answer I'd submit to you is Yes. Let me explain. You think about this word, the rock, and what makes this somewhat confusing is that many different times throughout the New Testament, Jesus is talked about as the rock of the church, right? You see it in 1 Corinthians 3.11, Jesus is called the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians 10.4, Jesus is called a rock. Ephesians 2.20, Jesus is called the chief cornerstone. So clearly, Jesus is the rock. He is the foundation of the community of God's people that we know as the church. 
But what's his point here? I think the unique thing here is that the name Peter actually means rock. And so Jesus is doing a bit of a play on words. And what he's saying in essence is this, I tell you, you are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. So there is a clear connection between Peter and the building of Jesus's church. But I want you to think, what makes Peter so foundational in this passage? In just a moment, Jesus calls him Satan, right? He says, you're a stumbling block. So what is it about Peter that makes him a rock that he can build his church on? It's Peter's confession that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. So while in a sense, yes, the rock here is Peter, what Jesus is really pointing out is that the true rock is the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the rock. That's what Jesus builds his church on, the proclamation of God's people. Peter is central because he is the first to declare this good news that the Messiah has come. He would go on to do this over and over again, including in Acts chapter 2, where Peter proclaims the good news of Jesus and over 3,000 people give their life to Jesus Christ. So yes, Peter was a foundational person in the building of Jesus' church. But friends, here's what you need to know. That mantle has now been passed down generation to generation to you. Every single time we as God's people proclaim who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the one to bring salvation, that he is the son of the living God, we become that rock on which Jesus builds his church. Jesus is the architect. Our proclamation is the means to him making what he has done known. That's why every single week when we gather together as a church family, our primary goal is to simply proclaim who Jesus is and what he's done. Every single week. That's what we do in this room. And when we do that, a miracle happens. God reveals in the hearts of people who he really is, and people are saved. And what happens? Jesus' church is built. It's a process that's happened all the way from the time of Peter until today. But here's something I want you to remind you of as we get ready to close. This work of proclaiming the gospel is not just to be done in this room. I know that all of you in this room know this. You know it mentally. But the way that Jesus continues to build his church is through the faithful proclamation of the gospel through people like you. It's not through just a pastor. It's not through just our missionaries serving around the world. It is people like you in your neighborhood in your workplace, in your circles of influence with your friends, in your home, constantly, constantly, constantly proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done. As you do so, that's how Jesus builds his church. I cannot get into any of your apartment buildings. If I do, I'll be arrested, right? I can't get into your workplaces. If I try, I'm going to get kicked out. But God has placed you in those places to be his spokesperson, to tell those individuals who he is and what he's done. As you do so, we see an incredible promise. What does Jesus say? I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's what that means. As you go and proclaim the gospel, you are part of an invincible mission. You're part of an invincible mission, an unstoppable mission. When it talks about the gates of Hades, what it's talking about is the power of death. Jesus is saying, death cannot stop me as the Messiah, neither can death stop you, my messengers. I love what J.C. Ryle, a, a great scholar, 
said. He said, nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beheaded, beaten, burned, but the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its affliction. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The Pharaohs, the Herods, the Neros have labored in vain to put down this church. The church is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. The church is a bush which is often burning and yet will never be consumed. Friends, you are that church. This passage is not about an infallible pope, okay? So many Roman Catholics have seen this passage. There's nothing in that passage that points in that direction. This passage is about an invincible mission with a crucified, risen Messiah. And we as a people of the community of faith have an opportunity to go out and to be a proclaiming people. If we know Jesus is the Christ, if we know Jesus is the Son of God, why would we not share that with everyone that we meet? As we close... I believe Jesus wants each one of us to honestly answer that question. Not just what you know in your head, but what you believe in your heart. Jesus is looking at each one of us and he's saying this, who do you believe I am? What do you say about me? It's not enough to just say Jesus is a great example or Jesus is a great teacher. He's kind of my personal advisor. He's my sidekick. I've quoted this before, but I want to read it as we end. C.S. Lewis said this, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either, choice. either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. The question for you today is, who is Jesus? 2,000 years ago, Peter got it right. He said, Jesus is the Christ. He's my salvation. He's the son of the living God. 2,000 years later, you have a lot more to work with. You not only have eyewitness accounts of his miracles, but you have eyewitness accounts of his death and his resurrection. You have 2,000 years of changed lives. You have 2,000 years of the Spirit's work. You have 2,000 years of Jesus' words being proven true. And so I ask you this morning, who do you say Jesus is? If you've never put your trust in him, my prayer for you this morning is that the Father, that God would do the same thing in you that he did for Peter, that he would reveal to you who Jesus really is. That this morning you'd put your trust in him. You'd turn from your sin, what the Bible calls repentance, and put your faith wholly in Jesus Christ. Friend, I'm telling you, irresistible mission, unbelievable joy comes with Christ. For those of you in this room that do confess that Jesus is Christ, I have to ask the question, does your life reflect that belief? When's the last time you proclaimed that news to someone else? If we really believe it, why are we not proclaiming it? Why are we not telling others? Why are we not living in light of who he is?